You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. Amen. We're so grateful that you're here today. We want to express, our, our, again, our thanks to uh, Michelle Sherlin and Karen McMaster for helping to put together our missions convention. It's been a blessing up until this point, and we hope that you've caught the heart and desire for missions. We believe in reaching not only uh, our area locally, but globally as well. We believe that this gospel message is worth bringing to every person to hear and give the opportunity to know the Savior today. We are concluding our missions convention today, and our guest speaker uh, is a former missionary uh, who served in Africa and Swaziland for 10 years, who has also has experience as a pastor and was a professor at North Point Bible College as well. Uh, pastor Ray is a great friend. He's a very easygoing guy, um, and he is someone that brings the truth in a very accessible way. And uh, will you help me welcome Pastor Ray Monroe as he comes to bring the word today? That water mine. Yes. Good morning. Before I go any further, let me just say that uh, that worship service was tremendous. Wow. Yeah. Really was. Um, having opportunities to be in different churches and different pulpits uh, to hear God's word proclaimed through song is really something. So thank, where, where's the, the singers? There you are. Amen. Okay, where's my former student? Oh. Good to see you. It's been, what, about 50 years that I haven't seen you? No, it hasn't been that long. God bless you. Good to see you. It really is. I hope what I say this morning you haven't heard maybe somewhere before in a class because I, um, as Pastor Dan said, I've had the opportunity to be on the faculty of North Point Bible College for about 12 years, and I, a time or two, did teach uh, some missions classes, so that was something real special to be able to promote missions in that context and to be here with you this morning to kind of wrap up uh, your missions convention. And as folks have said, and you've been given a card, uh, you're going to be asked to do something at the end of our service this morning. And so hopefully what has happened during the course of the last few days, and specifically as we reach the end of our service, that uh, you'll be in a position to hear God on what he would have you do in supporting missions around the world. Uh, Pastor Dan mentioned that for a number of years, my wife and our three daughters, we were Assemblies of God World Missionaries. Wow, what a title, huh? AGWM. We had the privilege of serving 10 years in Swaziland. It's in the southern part of Africa. And our first term was in the Republic of South Africa. All of us have probably in some manner heard of South Africa. We were there, my children at the time, very young when we left to go to Africa. I had uh, my girls at that uh, time were seven, five, and three years of age when we went to South Africa. We spent four years there, and we lived under 
the apartheid regime. Anybody have heard that word? Nelson Mandela was still in jail, uh, and it was a difficult time to be in that part of the world. I, I wouldn't have done it if I didn't sense and feel God's leading and direction. I remember getting off the plane when we arrived in Johannesburg, South Africa, and my field director, as he was called, my missionary leader, boss, whatever you would define him as, because of the intense difficulty with politics and coming from America, one of the first things he said to me, in a very kind way, but uh, I could tell that he was, wasn't kidding, he said, remember, Ray, you're not here to get involved in politics, you're here to preach the gospel. And the reason why is that uh, stepping into any political debates or opinions at that time in that part of the world could have jeopardized our ability to be able to preach the gospel in Southern Africa. So I didn't get into politics. And, uh, well, things worked out. I taught in one of our Bible colleges in South Africa for four years. And then during our transition back in our next term, uh, God opened up the opportunity for us to go to Swaziland. Anybody ever heard of Swaziland? Oh, God bless you. Good. They've changed the name of Swaziland since I left. It's now called Eswatini, which basically still means the Swazi people. Um, They got some money from the United Nations to change their name, and they took it because it costs money to change the name legally and so on and so forth. And anyway, the name of the country, it's a small country about the size of the state of New Jersey. And the reason that our transition from South Africa to Swaziland was somewhat smooth is the fact that in South Africa, when we were there for our first term for four years, we worked primarily with the Zulu tribe. The Zulus are the largest black tribe in southern Africa. Um, and the Zulus and the Swazis are tribal cousins. So the language, the custom, and the culture uh, was not much different from what we had learned and been uh, involved with in South Africa. So we made the transition over to Swaziland. And it was there that I had the opportunity to, um, well, I was, can you imagine I was a principal of a Bible school? Did you ever know that? No. They wouldn't let me say that at North Point. They, they wanted that kept. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> they, they kept that under. No. Anyway, we had a, um, a wonderful small Bible college, but good facilities, great students. And also, while we were in Swaziland, we, uh, you saw a picture of my wife there, her, I, and one of my uh, deans, one of the deanest students at the college, Swaziland College of Theology, we planted a church in the capital city of Baban. Uh, it's the uh, largest city in Swaziland, and we started that church, Christian Life Center, in a movie theater. One theater in the whole capital city, and we got permission uh, to rent it out on a Sunday morning and hold church. And we did. And it was exciting. One of the, I would say, the diverse attractions was it was an English-speaking church. And there were a lot of uh, uh, national people from other African countries that lived in uh, Swaziland. Some were diplomats. They didn't know Siswati or Sizulu. So they came out for the English services, had a great opportunity to, to start that church in the theater. My wife would hold Sunday school classes 
We had no space in that church. We started with around 12 people. By the time we were finished and we left four years later, that church was running about 250 people. Yeah, thank God for that. I raised, uh, I had to raise $50,000 for them to build their own building. We bought a piece of property. It was about a five-acre plot. And that church, now it has a national pastor. I went back. I took some students. I can't remember when, but it was within the last 10 years. We went back and did a missions trip to Swaziland. And that church was having, I think, three services. They had two or three people on staff. Uh, The thing was thriving And what really got me is the pastor pulled up that morning in a new new Mercedes. Wow, yeah. I wanted to give him my resume. You know, it was like, hey, can I come back here? This looks pretty good. Saying all that to say a little bit humorous that God bless that church. And it's all run by nationals now. We helped them start and get some money for the building. But God bless that church. Uh, They got out of the theater. We used to hold Sunday school classes. This is my point. In that theater... You know where we had Sunday school classes? Two, two extra little rooms. Can anybody guess where we held Sunday school? You say, yeah, in the bathrooms. I got pictures of my wife in the, in the men's room with about nine, ten little kids in a small, small area in the midst of, you know, what's in the bathrooms. And there we were, and that's, that's what we did. Nobody got upset. I mean, can you imagine that in the United States? They put me in jail. I go to jail for life. But nobody, nobody got upset. Nobody was overly concerned. Uh, we made sure as to the best that we could things were sanitary. But nonetheless, just to give you a different picture culturally of the things that might disturb you and I in an, through the eyes of a, of a national African, it's not a big deal. Can I tell you one more little cultural thing that's different between us and them? A lot of places, whether it was in the villages in South Africa, when we worked with the Zulus or over in Swaziland, they don't have indoor plumbing. Say amen. amen. I mean, I, for, to me personally, the greatest invention of the last thousand years is indoor plumbing. I think it's fantastic, especially in February when it gets cold. But uh, a lot of the areas that uh, we were in, involved with and traveled to, a lot of the rural areas, obviously no indoor plumbing. And, okay, that was a little bit different for me to get adjusted to and my family, but we did it, no big deal. Then I had a, an African pastor come to visit in us here in the States years back. And, and he was a little, uh, he was, you know, confused, not super confused, because in other parts of Africa, and especially throughout South Africa, in some of the, the modern, bigger homes, they had indoor plumbing. Plumbing, So they were aware of that. But he said to me, as we were sitting in the kitchen, he said to me, as we were talking about cultural differences, and he said to me, Fundis, I just don't understand. I, I said, what? And he said, that wall. And he pointed to the wall in the kitchen, right? He said, on the other side of that wall, he says, that's where you go do your business. He said, there is only a wall between where you do your business and where you cook your food. Was he right? He sure was. I know it was a wall, but through his cultural perspective, having a bathroom, a toilet, a latrine on the other side of a wall where you were preparing your meals three times a day, that just didn't kind of make a whole lot of sense. 
to him. So yes, culture. Culture can be a prison or it can be a palace. Even in America, your culture, our culture here, it can be something that is a palace for us because we're aware of it. But when you transition and you go live and work among a people whose culture and language is different from your own, you're going to find out at times you feel like you're in prison. Oh, enough of that uh, stuff. I'm here this morning to challenge you to make a faith promise in a few moments. And I'm hoping and anticipating, and I've been praying since Pastor Dan was gracious enough to extend the invitation to me, that God in some way has already been speaking to your hearts about what... uh, what he would have you do regarding your faith promise. But before we we talk more about that, 2,000 Assembly of God missionaries around the world. Assemblies of God missionaries are in 140 different nations. Here's an interesting fact for those of you that are into statistics. You realize that throughout our national churches all over the world, on every continent where we have missionaries, every 62 seconds... In one of those national assemblies of God churches, 62 seconds, someone gives their heart and life to Jesus Christ as Savior. That's wonderful. Every, just about every minute, somewhere, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in Asia, Europe, or Africa, somebody commits their life to Jesus Christ. And another statistic that's encouraging to me is that every 95 minutes... 95 minutes, it's about an hour and a half, right, if I'm doing the math correctly. Every 95 minutes, somewhere in the world, an Assemblies of God church is built. Now, that's pretty good. Can you say amen to that? And as you saw the pictures from uh, the dear sister who was in Ghana, some of those buildings that they're uh, erecting are not as beautiful as your sanctuary. They're just two or three sides. I saw one of the pictures there from Ghana, and it was nothing but a dirt floor. I've been in a lot of churches like that with tin roofs, dirt floors, and goats and chickens running through while you're preaching, you know? That's exciting. You kind of wonder, is that going to be dinner later or what, you know? (laughs) I'll take that one, you know? There they go, but... So... The only thing with the tin roofs was difficult when it would rain. Just can imagine, you know, and man, then I'd have to get loud. And if we, a, lot of the, a lot of the churches, some of them had PA systems and some of them didn't. And I preached myself hoarse a number of different times, especially if it would start to rain. Uh, not fun. You know, something about Assemblies of God World Mission and World Missions, 95% of our, our growth, 95% is not in the United States of America. Does that make sense? In other words, we're bigger outside than we are here in America. The church in Brazil, the Assembly of God Church in Brazil, Brazil, excuse me, has 35 to 40 million members in Brazil. You go to South Korea, where at one time the world's largest church was, there they had one church that had a million members uh, Paul Young I Cho, I don't know if anybody remembers that name. He just passed away, I think, within the last few months. Um, one of our, our teachers, in fact, I think it was President Crabtree, went to visit 
in South Korea, that big church, and they have Prayer Mountain and so on and so forth. And one of the pastors, I think they had a, they have staff pastors of about 3,000. Can you imagine that? 3,000 staff pastors. That's unbelievable. I can't wrap my head around all that. But when the president, the former president of North Point, when he was there traveling in North Korea, one of the staff pastors, as they were just touring the city just a bit, one, the pastor said to him, I want to play a game with you. And they were walking down the busy uh, part of, of the main city there in Seoul, Korea, where the church was. And he said to Brother Crabtree, he said, I challenge you as we're walking in a few minutes, just shout out, praise the Lord, and see what happens. And he said, I'll bet you, you're going to get four or five answers back, praise the Lord. Sure enough, Brother Crabtree at a certain time shouted, praise the Lord. And he heard, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That's how many Christians were living in the capital city of Seoul, Korea. It's amazing what God is doing around the world. One last statistic, and then I'm going to share a verse of Scripture with you this morning. Uh, One last statistic about our Assemblies of God missions and what we are doing literally around the world. Why in the last hundred hundred years has... uh, this missions movement been so successful. I believe ultimately it's the sovereignty of God. Can I get an amen to that? God's sovereignty, but I believe it's also been through the faithfulness of God's people, missionaries, families that have been willing to sacrifice and literally go to the far corners of the world to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. People's faithfulness, God's sovereignty are an excellent and a tremendous combination. Five factors that have really led to the growth of Assemblies of God World Missions. Number one, Number one, they did a a research, I believe it was out of one of our colleges, maybe it was our theological seminary that got these statistics. Why have we done so well? Why is 95% of our constituency outside of the United States? And the first factor they determined that promoted our growth and success was the emphasis, the emphasis on the priesthood of every believer, The priesthood of every believer. What does that mean? I I don't want to get into a a, a big theological discussion, but emphasizing the priesthood of every believer simply means that they look to the lay people to get involved with the work of the ministry. Our national churches recognize and understand the importance of people knowing and finding their spiritual gift in a church to see that church grow. Am I making any sense with all of this? Yeah. In other words, there isn't that big division between clergy and laity. Our churches have grown because we teach the fact that the Word of God says every believer is a priest and has an opportunity to minister. You know what your spiritual gift is? Whole other subject, whole other topic. But that's what was one of the first things they discovered that really allowed our churches to grow. The second thing was the priority of ministerial training. They believed in training men and women for ministry. And as I've already mentioned to you, I had the privilege of being involved with two of those institutions, one in South Africa and one in Swaziland. We believe in training our leaders. The third was focusing on growth rather than maintenance. 
rather than maintaining the saints. Focusing on growth. We have to reach the lost. That is a priority. In fact, that has to be the number one priority, reaching the lost. And I like this next one, number four. There's five. What has caused our growth worldwide in the last hundred years? Number five. In our churches, through the ministry of our pastors and people, there was a very high dependency and expectation of the supernatural and miraculous. Hallelujah. Yeah. You know, they expect things to happen. And I found in ministry and being at this for a hundred years or so, that people usually experience what they expect. If you didn't expect anything to happen today, guess what? Nothing might happen. But if we come, and I believe that's our responsibility, when we come into a service and have such a, a beautiful spiritual atmosphere that through the worship this morning, we should expect God to show up and do something. But our churches worldwide, the people are taught to come expecting and depending upon the miraculous and the supernatural. And number five, the last factor of our growth worldwide during the course of this last century was that we focus our resources on ministry and not buildings. You know, uh, yeah, they have buildings, again, not by North American standards, a number of them. Some of them around the cities definitely are, are quite similar to our churches, but our focus in teaching our national pastors is to utilize their resources on ministry and not necessarily on buildings. You know, when we would start churches, uh, we would call them shade tree Sunday school churches. You know, you find the, the biggest tree out in the field that if it rained, people wouldn't get wet and you start a Bible study right there. You meet at a certain time every week consistently and people begin to show up. And as that continues to evolve and grow, maybe in a couple years' time, you've got whatever, 30, 40, 50 people, you got yourself a little congregation. And then that congregation, as they learn good stewardship principles, they can get resources and build a small little church. But that's where we started. You can't, you know, we can't do that in the Northeast in January and February. But over there, it's uh, nine months out of the year. It's beautiful. Hallelujah. Nice and warm and I actually, as I drove up here from uh, Adams today, coming through the back country and a lot of country roads, there was snow on the ground in some places. I freaked out. It was like, what? <laughs> wasn't frost. It was real snow. I mean, it wasn't much, but I almost wanted to take a picture, but I thought better of that idea. All right. I hope just uh, in that brief couple of minutes kind of gave you some statistics about what God is doing around the world and the fact that you're going to have an opportunity to play a part in continuing sending the good news throughout the world. So good to look at your pamphlet of all the missionaries you're supporting. I know many of them. Thank God for your faithfulness in what you've done in the past. And again, this morning, you're going to be challenged and simply asked to consider making another faith, faith promise. You know, I, I, I'm not... This has been my little 
philosophy of ministry through the years. I have found over the years sometimes guilt is not a good motivator, okay? So I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Just take exhale and, oh, what's this guy going to do? Shake us down? Not at all. <laughs> guilt is not a good motivator. I'm simply trying to present to you the honest reality of what God is doing and what he wants to continue to do through you around your world. And you can see the flags, the pictures, so just beautifully placed around your sanctuary because I have to believe again in my heart, being a missionary, God's heartbeat is missions. He's concerned about the lost. Well, let me, let me try to share a couple of verses of Scripture in the time remaining with you. I'll give you the text in just a moment. But if I say this little phrase, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Anybody know where that originates from? Snow White. Did somebody say that? Yeah, did he get it right there? Did he say Snow White? Yeah. You, yeah. I don't have a prize to give you, but if I had one, I'd give it to you. <laughs> mirror, mirror on the wall, right? Yeah. Taken from Snow White. I, I remember as a child that part of the whatever it was kind of would freak me out and, you know, not gotten back and into that in a number of years. But I would imagine that each and every one of us, one of us before you left the house this morning, did you take one last little look in the mirror? Huh? Did you? You, you want to? No, he's shaking his head no. Yeah. Well, that's an honest young man. You know what, though? You look good. You don't need a mirror. But for most of us, we, you know, at least I do. i am got to make sure everything's kind of plastered and pasted in the right way. You know, you just take a little glance or how am I looking? Mirror. There they are. It's a reflection of who we are. And there's a passage, two verses, in John chapter 12. If you want to turn there with me, you can. John chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 20 and 21. It kind of goes along with that thought about a mirror and what it means, what it reflects. John chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Reading this morning, uh, my translation is the New International Version. I trust whatever version you have will not be all that different from what I'm going to read to you out of John chapter 12, verses 20 and verse 21. Verse 20 states that now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. That would be the feast of the Passover. Verse 21, these Greeks, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir... They said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew, and Philip in turn told Jesus. Where we're going to stay this morning is just really in that 21st verse. They went to Philip and they said to him simply, we want to see Jesus. I believe for you and I as a follower of Jesus Christ, your world and my world, by the way we live, by the way we behave, by the way we act, by the way we treat one another, people in our world need to see 
Jesus in our lives. Amen? They, they simply do. And as I, I think of that, sir, we would see Jesus. That's a question that I believe you and I continually have to ask ourselves. Is my world seeing Jesus? Are the people that I interact with, is my own family for that matter? What kind of a picture do they see of Christ? Why is that important? Well, it's important simply because of the fact you and I know that the message of Jesus Christ, what is taught in the Gospels, is the only message that can provide salvation for a man or a woman throughout the world. There is no other way. There is no other name. There is no other method. Someone else doesn't have to come. Jesus came, paid the price once and for all. Now, that's a scary subject if you and I believe that those people who, who perish, who die without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ are going to spend their eternity in hell. If we believe in a literal hell, somehow, some way, that should make us a bit uncomfortable when we recognize the fact that there is only one way. There is only one person. There is only hope found in none other than Jesus. Our world, your world, needs to see Jesus. Now, just to give you a little bit of background information of the a chapter I read, two great events, two monumental events in the life and ministry of Jesus had taken place before the question was posed by Philip. We would see Jesus. The first thing was that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus. John, you know that story? Resurrection, wonderful story. Quite a stir. And I can imagine why. If you and I were in a position to see someone literally resurrected from the day, that should wake you up and get you excited, huh? Yeah. Jesus had resurrected Lazarus, causing a stir. People were getting upset, especially the religious leaders and authorities. And the second thing that was hyping up the excitement in the community was what you and I traditionally call nowadays Palm Sunday. He made his what? Triumphant entry in the city of Jerusalem. And those two events, raising Lazarus from the dead, coming into the city of Jerusalem in such a, uh, you would have to say, such a, a tremendous, exciting way, was getting the crowd to wonder who was this man. And these two Greeks, basically, just to, to make it simple, they were Gentile converts to Judaism. And as a Gentile convert to Judaism, it was their religious duty to be in Jerusalem, the holy city, for what feast? The Passover. And while they were there to observe the Passover, some way, somehow, they heard about Jesus. Something happened in their lives that that wanted them, they had a desire growing in them, 
We want to see this man. Now, looking and doing a little bit of study about that, in the way the original words in the language of Greek, the New Testament language, is used, they just didn't want to see a picture of Jesus. Are you with me? You know, they didn't want to, oh, let me take a selfie with Jesus. No, they weren't just interested in having a picture of Jesus. It's kind of intimated in the language, the way it's structured. They wanted to to talk to him. They wanted to dialogue with him. They wanted to have a a discussion with him. They wanted to get to maybe as, well, quickly as possible, a little bit about this man that was claiming to be the Messiah. And they had that question for Philip. Philip, we want to see Jesus. My dear friends, that's the same question that people in your world and in your lives and people throughout the countries that are represented, that your missionaries are, that's the same cry. That's the same question today that they are asking. We want to see Jesus. Now, I I don't know about you, but when I was pastoring, that's something I, I, I tried to make sure was paramount in the life of our church, that people, especially someone who had no idea of the Bible, no idea properly of Christianity, walked into the church. I I really didn't, I I had the, I don't know, the thought that did they really care about the pews, the carpet? Did they really care about our amenities and what we got? Did they really care about all that? Not that that's wrong, not that that's bad. Within our culture, that's something that's important. But I hoped and It was my prayer as a pastor. Every time people came into the building, they would see Jesus in the lives of our parishioners. And not only limited to the building, but outside of the church as well. Why? Because the Bible clearly tells us in the book of Acts, the fourth chapter, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men which must be saved. There's only one way, and that way is Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus. That's the cry of the people of the world. You know, there's 4,000 different religions in the world. 4,000. Pretty wild, huh? I didn't think there was that many. 4,000. And some of them are not uh, what we would consider mainline traditional religions. Now, there's small groups, there are movements in different tribes, but 4,000 different religions in the world. And even though there's that many, three-quarters of the world's population, three-quarters of the world's almost seven-plus billion people, three-quarters of those people only adhere to the five what missiologists call the five major religions. Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, and us, Christianity. So three-quarters of the world's population adheres to one of the five major religions. How are these people, how are they going to find Jesus? How are they going to hear about his message of hope and good news. It's within the heart and mind of man. Man has been created, not only physically and emotionally, 
But man has been created with a spiritual nature. And people innately have a hunger and a desire to know about God. You know, when I lived in Africa and ministered among the tribal people, I never, never once had to convince someone who wasn't a believer about the existence of God. Never got an argument about there being a God. Not like here in the United States where we are very big on atheism. And atheism worldwide isn't that big. Do you know that? Let me throw another statistic at you. 93% of the world's population has a belief in God. A God. Not the God that you and I know, all of them. But 93% of the world's population believes in a God. So I never had to debate with anyone in Africa about the existence of a God. They knew. They knew that somehow... Some way, someone had to create all of this and keep it going and in order. I didn't get debates about the existence of God, had questions asked in other areas, but people believed in God. The lost of our world. The only hope for them is to see Jesus. You play a part in that this morning by considering and prayerfully making a pledge, a faith promise, so that your missionaries and the ministries that you support around the world can do the job. Sirs, we need to see Jesus. Why? He's the only hope for a terminally lost and dying world. Another thought that I challenge with you is simply this. If I ask that question again, sir, we would see Jesus. Why? Why is that necessary? Well, maybe during the course of human history, during the course of Christian history, the last 2,000 years, maybe, just maybe, parts of our world, the possibility exists somehow, some way, that our world has got a distorted picture of Christ and Christianity. You know, it's out of focus. You didn't clean your glasses. Something's wrong. The picture of Christ has been distorted. What causes that distortion? I believe one thing that can cause a distorted image of Christ being projected in our world is time. Time, yeah. Maybe that church, maybe that religious organization, that denomination at one time, they started out correctly. But with the passing of time, somehow, some way. That image of Christ and what is being taught and preached is now flawed. Time causes that image to be marred. Sir, we would see Jesus. Can't see him properly because over time, that image is distorted. Do you remember, anybody remember we're old enough, the Hubble thing, the Hubble telescope? It's still up there, doing a wonderful job. But if you remember back in the 90s when they first sent it up, it wasn't working right. The mirror that was ground, the telescope, they ground it wrong. And they had to send astronauts up there and they, you know, had to put like bifocals on it. I'm simplifying it. But they spent all that money. And from uh, 90 to 93, I think it was, it wasn't working right till they got someone up there and they put, you know, bifocals on it. And now the images that you get from the Hubble, I mean, you can Google it. Everybody know Google, right? You can check it out, see that I'm not lying here this morning, so... But it was distorted. It wasn't working properly. They had to fix it. I think another 
way that the image of Christ gets distorted is through t- traditions. We just got to keep doing things the way we do them, right? Pastor Ray, that's the way we always done things. We, we have traditions. Some good. I'm not saying that all traditions are, are, are wrong, but some traditions, especially if they distort or mar the image of Christ, maybe we got to throw them out. You want another story? I got another one, Dad, about traditions. Younger pastor, he'd just taken the church over, a little bit more of a formal, traditional church. And up around the altar where they would have their communion table, there was like a, a wall. You know, some churches have walls. Or, I mean, you know what I mean, or an, an altar kind of thing. And, and in front of that, there was the communion table, and then there was the, the wall, the altar in the back. And on that, that back wall was a radiator. Well, this young pastor, stay with me, he did his first communion service. They broke bread, drank the cup and everything. And he thought he did a great job. Wow, that was good. Then he found out after the service, he saw some of his deacons shaking their head. And he went, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, something's wrong, Uh uh-oh. Well, one of them, not really all that nice, said to him, you served communion wrong. Huh? You served communion wrong. Oh, well, um, okay. Uh, why? He said, well, our previous pastor, every time he would pass out the elements before he passed out the cup and the bread, he would reach back and he would touch the radiator. Okay. Tradition. He would touch the radiator, right? So that young guy, Monday, Tuesday, it really ate at him. It bothered him. He called up the former pastor, and he said, "What? they're telling me I did something wrong. And the other pastor starts laughing loudly on the other end. He goes, oh, yeah, they're right. Before I would hand them the trays and the plates, he said, I would turn around, and I would touch that heater, he says, because I had to diffuse all the static electricity in my hands. He said, for a while, I would hand them the plate, and they would get shocked. That tradition has to go. (laughs) Time, tradition, and not maintaining truth is another cause for some churches to have that question answered improperly about seeing Jesus. I I simply believe that the spiritual health of any fellowship or denomination depends, really depends on being faithful to the teachings and the doctrines of that church. Can I get an amen? And where do those doctrines, where do they originate? Where are they taught? In our Bible colleges and seminaries. So we can't let, we can't let improper and sound doctrine distort the message of Jesus. You know, the Apostle Paul, I'm not, time is, is, is going, but the Apostle Paul, he knew He understood quite well, theologically and practically, about the fact that if you're saved, if you're born again, if you have Jesus in your life, Christ lives in you. Christ lives in you. We are the temple, aren't we? Our body is a tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. Paul knew that. And over a hundred different times throughout his writings in different forms, 
Paul emphasizes that to the New Testament church, that if you are a believer, Christ lives in you. And because Jesus lives in me and in you, I believe we have a responsibility to reflect his image to our world. How are people going to see Jesus? They're going to see him through you and I. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Paul says in Colossians, Christ in you is the hope of glory. Isn't that pretty good? In Ephesians, he said, Christ dwells in our hearts. In Galatians, he talks about being crucified with Christ and that Jesus now lives in him. Philippians, Paul goes on to say that Christ, Jesus, lives in him and makes him strong. Christ in you, Christ in me, Christ in the lives of our missionaries will answer the question from John chapter 12 and verse 20 that I've left to you. Our world, your world, my world needs to see Jesus. We can continue, we can continue to answer that question by our faithful missions giving. Now it comes to the point of the service as we're going to close in just a moment and I'm going to ask you prayerfully and I'm going to lead you in prayer in a moment but the question is now before us today. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Our world needs to see him. Why? Well, there is an estimate that half of the world's population really doesn't have an adequate witness of Jesus Christ. And I believe we can help answer this question, this very impassioned question. It can be answered by following the commands of Jesus in Matthew 28 and Mark 16, going into all the world to preach the gospel. I know all of us can't go. All of us are not called to go. Some are senders. You're a sender here today. What do you send? Your prayers and your finances. Are you still with me? Say amen. Missionaries are, in a sense, not senders, they're penetrators. They are the ones that get on a plane or a boat and travel to a foreign shore and penetrate communities and culture and custom with the good news. They are bringing to those nations, people, the opportunity to see Jesus. Hallelujah. And we have a, we have a part to play in all of that as we consider making a faith promise believe we got a, uh, yeah, there's a, a nice overhead. You can read it or I'll read it for you. So what is a faith promise? It's a sacred act. It is a spiritual agreement with you and God that with his help, you will give a certain amount to the church during the next 12 months to be used in missions for the evangelization of the lost. It is a sign of total reliance upon God for divine provision. Faith promise. Pastor Ray, is that my tithe? No. Is that an offering? No. It's a faith promise. Are we all on the same page? It's different from that. Not really a pledge. You're taking a, you're taking a step of faith, and you're believing that, God, I'm going to pledge this amount, and, Lord, you're going to be faithful to provide the funds during the course of the next 12 months. One of our pastors in our network said, 
He put this on Facebook, something quite simple. Pastor Brad Whipple said this, being aware of the economy, being aware of what is taking place in our nation, especially when it comes to finances. Pastor Brad says, God's ability to provide is not changed by inflation or shipping crisis. Yeah, I understand what's going on, but God's ability to provide for that faith promise, for that decision that you're going to make in a moment, we're trusting God. Lord, I'm promising this this amount. I'm promising God with your help for that promise to be fulfilled. Why do we do it? So that the world can continue to see Jesus. If you get nothing else, get that verse, okay? Sir, we want to see Jesus. Our job, our responsibility, our spiritual obligation has to do all that we can to allow that to happen. Let me pray, and then you'll have that opportunity to mark your faith promise cards. I believe it's uh, two in two pieces, right? One is going to be collected. You keep the other as a reminder. Stick it in your Bible. Put it on your fridge. Whatever you have to do as simply as a reminder. And I know, Pastor Deanna, most of our churches, you're not going to call them up for a faith promise, you know. No, this is between you and God. They will be tallied. You add them all up, and then you figure out, okay, this is how much has been promised. Now we can take that amount and continue or maybe even add on support to missionaries a vital part of a missions-giving church. And God always blesses a missions-giving church. He does. God blesses a missions-giving church. I don't, can't explain that to you organizationally, theologically, but there is just some way God blesses a missions-giving church. And I, I have to believe that his blessing will continue upon you as well as you're faithful to him in this important area. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning and this opportunity to share about missions. I thank you for this congregation and, Lord, the faithfulness of what they've done during the last years and how they have a concern for the lost. Lord, I pray now in the quietness and the sacredness of this moment that you'll speak to your people about what you would have them do as they take a step of faith, as they reach out and trust you, God. Speak to them, Lord. Speak to them, God, on what their own individual responsibility should be. Lord, thank you again for this privilege of sharing your word and just reminding my dear friends here that that cry that was spoken to Philip is still relevant today. Our world needs to see Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Dan. Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.